Welcome back to the Cyclinches Podcast, everybody. I am Kaylee Fretz. It's just after stage six of the Tour de France, and we have another Mark Cavendish stage win to talk about today. It's a slimmed down crew on the Cycling Tips Podcast. How are you, Abby? I'm good. <laughs> Dane? I don't feel slimmed down. I know that much. I haven't felt that way for, for a little while, actually. But, uh, but thank you for saying that. You're looking great. Thank you. You're looking great. Your dimples are quite dimply. Thank today. you. And Thanks, everything. Abby. I appreciate that. It, it means you're looking at them and not the grays in my beard, which you know, I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> All right, crew. Let's get into today's episode. We've got quite a lot to talk about. We've got a great sprint to pick apart. There's quite a few kind of bits, bits of narrative running through that sprint beyond just Mark Cavendish taking his 32nd stage win at the Tour de France. Uh, are we gonna? Are we gonna mention the M word, the M record? I think we should are we mentioning that. Yeah, we should. Only just the it'll make Cav mad, and that's that's kind of why we should do it. Honestly, <laughs> he he absolutely refuses to answer questions about the uh, Eddie Merckx Tour stage win record, which of course stands at 34. I thought you were talking about Merlot wine, and I was going to say no one likes Merlot. No one wants to talk about Merlot wine. I think we'll save the Merlot uh, discussion for later in the tour, maybe like another transition stage jokes. later in the I've race. Had better jokes. I'm sorry. That was that was fine. That was like a B plus joke. B B B. We can call it a B. Flat B. <laughs> uh... We're going to talk about uh, some of the strange kind of breakaway dynamics today and how that's really changed over the last couple years and the way that the Peloton does or does not allow a group to get up the road and how far has really changed. We're going to briefly update you on where Lachlan Morton is today in France. We'll get to that at the end of the stage. And then, of course, we're going to talk about tomorrow, which is a pretty fascinating stage. It is lumpy. It's got a bunch of categorized climbs near the end, including a Cat 2 and some bonus seconds on the penultimate climb. We'll get into a deep dive on tomorrow's stage and, and who you should pick for your fantasy and who might win tomorrow. But before we do, Abby, what are we learning about Continental today? As much as Kaylee dislikes time trials, and dare we say it, triathlon. There are many who love both of these disciplines, and for those who do, Continental has the super fast Grand Prix TT or arrow tuned attack force set. The Grand Prix TT is specifically designed for going fast over short distances with its semi slick tread pattern, black chili compound, and Vectron puncture protection. It is made to challenge the clock. The attack force set are the aerodynamic tuning set for the road. The specifically developed 3D tread pattern provides flow optimized behavior. That sounds fancy. On the front, agile and direct. At the rear, comfortable and dampening. Either way, Continental tires are made to get you there fast. Thank you to Continental for sponsoring this episode. All right, let's get into it. We've got we have a we have a sprint to dissect, and I'm sure most of our listeners out there have probably seen at the very least a replay of this sprint. But Dane, what what stood out to you from this second Mark Cavendish victory today? Quite a few things. I think there are quite a few talking points from this sprint. Uh, we had a nice showing from the Dakota Quickstep lead out once again, which we've come to expect. Uh, they led the way into the last kilometer on the left side of the road, and then we saw 
race leader Matthew Vanderpool leading the Alpecin Fennec squad up the right side of the road. Always good to see the guy in yellow uh, doing a lead out. And they kind of came together at one point, and Cavendish made the decision to jump onto the Alpecin and Fennec's train, uh, which, you know, that that things can go either way. If, if you decide to follow your teammate there, I, I don't know, he might have been too far back. So he made the call to jump on the, on the Alpecin Fennec's train, and then he went right as... Uh, as Jasper Philipson went left behind leadout man Tim Merlier, and we can get into that in a little bit, why Merlier was a leadout man today. Uh, and Cav was, yeah, he, he was just too fast, although both riders did kind of end up at one point going for kind of the same spot right in front of Tim Merlier, and Cavendish got it, and Philipson kind of raised a hand in remonstration, I guess you could say. Uh, and, he, yeah, he was... He was remonstrative, uh, but Cavendish won, and Philipson did not. And the jersey, the jury determined that it was fine. I guess uh, it wasn't. It, it wasn't that bad. Uh, and both riders, by the way, were, were kind of a little bit swervy there. And Cav took a pretty clear win in the end. Uh, Philipson second, and Nasser Buani again in third on the day. So Cav now has 32 Tour de France stage wins, and uh, creeping ever closer to that record. He doesn't want to talk about. Also, 50 total Grand Tour stage wins after today, which is. Awesome. I mean, that, that is just, that's an incredible number. 50 is a lot of Grand Tour stage wins. It, it, the, the finale, I thought, was, was quite interesting. The finale, I thought, was quite interesting in that, like you said, there was a split-second decision made right near the finish there where Cav did have to jump off of his, his own lead-out. And, you know, when we, were, when we had Nathan Haas on the other day, and Nathan was kind of talking about, he called it artistry, but it, it, is, it is, there's something in good sprinters that allows them to make that decision very very quickly uh and make the 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 correct decision very very quickly and and cavendish basically proved again today that you know there's a reason why he's got 50 grand tour stage wins and 32 tour de france wins is because that decision i think is basically what led him to the eventual stage victory because if he had stayed left which the wind was coming from that side. Uh, he, he was actually better off on the left-hand side from a, from a wind perspective. But if he had stayed left, I think he would have gotten boxed in and stuck and would not have taken that stage win. You, we probably would have ended up with one of the Alpecin Phoenix riders taking that stage win. Uh, as you said, the other, I think, interesting dynamic here is is what Alpecin Phoenix is trying to do with their sprinter lead-out duo and how they sort of switched... Tim Merlier and Jasper Philipson back and forth a couple different times. Now, interestingly, one of the other Alps and Phoenix, one of, the, one of the teammates said after the stage that the original plan today was to ride for Tim Merlier. But that clearly was not the case. Merlier was the lead out man. He basically made it to about, what, 50, 75 meters to go and kind of sat up. And that's when Philipson and Cav kind of came around him. Uh, I'd, I, I'm... It's unclear to me why they are continuing to do this because we're now two for two where Cav versus Philipson, basically a head-to-head, Cav has taken that victory, right? And so if, if I'm the DS at Alps and Phoenix, I'm not, I'm not trying to pass stage wins around, which is the only reason I can currently think of to do this is that, you know, Merlier's already got his. You try to get your other sprinter a stage win, which is commendable, I suppose. But at some point, it's the Tour de France. You ride for your best sprinter. And to me, that is... Tim earlier right now and, and I think that next sprint stage my guess is they've they've flipped that sprinter lead out duo back to Philipson leading out earlier and I, I I think they have a much better chance of getting a stage win 
in that direction. I think it, I think we have to point out, I mean, Philipson is a fast rider. He has won big sprints before. He's won Grand Tour stages before. Uh, and I think it, it's not like they're leading out some guy uh, over there at Alpes and Phoenix. But Merlier has consistently shown this year that he's one of the best sprinters right now, period. And Philipson has never really had that level of dominance. And, and I think Philipson's also maybe a little bit better on some kind of lumpier um, roads. Uh, he, you know, he's he's got a, a little bit of a kick that, that uh, thrives and maybe not a slightly uphill finish. So the fact that they're continuing to go with him here, I, I kind of thought that they were going to get away from working for Philipson after the last time this happened. And I'm, I was really surprised today. And, and it, like you said, it's maybe they were going from earlier, but something happened. Uh, because otherwise, why would you go for for the guy who very clearly on stage four did not have the speed to, to best Cavendish. And it was once again proven here. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious to see what happens moving forward, because if, if Merlier gets the nod to be the leader again, what does that mean? I mean, we've seen Cav pretty handily beating Philipson, but we have not seen him actually beating Merlier yet. And it looks like Merlier to me, was like the only guy in this race who might have a chance of beating Cav right now. Cause Cav is flying and he's, He's not really, it's not been that close, the, the two stages that he's won. So I think Merlier's, you know, presence at the front is the only thing keeping Cav from potentially getting a few more wins, which, you know, would be a bit of a big story if he gets two more victories in this race. I also think it's worth noting that it, it's clear, I think, now that Alps and Phoenix does have the best lead out. They, they have a better lead out than Dakuna Quickstep. And part of that is because Dakuna Quickstep has been doing a lot more work throughout the stage. And we, I think we're going to get to that in a, little, in a little bit when we talk about the sort of breakaway dynamics and, and forcing other teams to ride, basically. But they've just had fewer, they've had less, less sort of power in, in the finales, right? Nonetheless, the end result of that is that Alps and Phoenix is the strongest lead out in the race, mostly because they have Matthew Vanderpool, right? We saw in the, in the finish today, within the last kilometer, Vanderpool just pulling his entire team up the right-hand side and pulling them level with an already flying Dakota Quickstep on the left. Without a rider who can act, who can do something like that, then Alps and Phoenix is probably not uh, not quite so powerful. By the way, so cool to see the yellow jersey uh, and the world champ both doing massive lead-out pulls, I think, into sprint finishes. That's just... It's something you don't see super often, and in particular once the yellow passes onto some GC rider's shoulders, but it is, it's just, it's just cool to see, you know, best riders in the world pulling lead out for their teammates. I know I just said that it's, it's kind of crazy that they rode again Philipson today, but I wouldn't mind seeing them ride for Vanderpool one of these days, just to see what happens. He's really fast in a finish, and there's been countless examples of riders who are as good as Vanderpool. I think Sagan is one of them where they're so versatile, you kind of forget how good they are at the individual skills. I mean, Sagan has won bunch sprints before, and people will constantly say things like, well, he's not a pure sprinter. I mean, he's not, but he can beat pure sprinters, and I think Vanderpool probably could too on a good day. I don't know if he could beat Cav on a tour stage against the Dakota Quickstep uh, leadout, but I wouldn't mind seeing it just to see what happened. I wonder if the reason why Alps and Phoenix is riding for Philipson is, as you said, he's more versatile. He can be at the front at more stages throughout the rest of the Tour de France, and he is currently second in the green jersey competition right behind Cavendish. He very likely can get to some finishes over the next two weeks that Cavendish cannot. And so maybe this is a longer-term play 
to get him as many green jersey points as possible and maybe they're looking at the green jersey right now it is worth because we've just had a bunch of sprint stages it's worth talking about the green jersey as well we've got cavendish in the lead with 148 points and then a big drop down to phillipson 102 that said you know we're early in the race and that gap is certainly not insurmountable nasser bahani in third with 99s that's quite tight then Michael Matthews, 96, again, quite tight. We've got Alaphilippe, Vanderpool, and then Peter Sagan all the way down in seventh in that competition with 72 points. Now, I still, again, I would not count out Peter Sagan for the green jersey at the end of this race because we're going in now to the week, week and a half, where there's a lot of lumpier transition stages. A day like tomorrow, Mark Cavendish is not winning tomorrow. Zero percent chance of Mark Cavendish winning tomorrow's stage somewhat decent chance that that peter sagan in good form can win a stage like tomorrow right and so we are coming into these 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 very different type of stages that are not pure sprint stages where that green jersey is actually often really determined i mean sagan's thing for the last decade has been you know put yourself in the top five and as many flat bunch bunch sprints as you can and then take a ton of points when it gets a little bit lumpier and i wonder i wonder if that is the rough plan with Philipson as well. He's not quite like Peter Sagan. He can't get over quite as many climbs, but he is definitely more versatile than Tim Merlier from what we've seen. Since we're talking about green, I think I think Cav can do it. And I wrote at the start of this race when I was trying to make some predictions and I thought that Caleb Ewan was not going to crash out uh, so early that I thought Ewan had a great chance at it for two reasons. One, the, 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 state, or the race this year has so many sprint stages for the pure sprinters, uh, more than normal. And that means that riders like Cavendish can now, you know, with Ewan gone, can maybe take up that, that role of winning all those sprints. And he already has really racked up the points in the sprints that it's hard, I think, for even if a rider like Sagan does have some great days where Cavendish gets nothing, the way the tour's points are skewed towards the pure sprinters, which I hate, by the way, but nobody asked me for my opinion on that. Uh, it's really hard for a rider like Sagan, and they did this on purpose because I think they got tired of Sagan winning it so often. Uh, it's hard for a rider like Sagan to rack up enough points on those intermediate days because the pure sprint days give you so many more points, and we still have several pure sprint days ahead. So Cavendish probably won't want to talk about it, but I think he's got a real shot at winning the green jersey here um, if he can continue to, to thrive the way he's been thriving the, the big question for me is can he just survive those hard mountain stages coming into this race kind of without the preparation that is normal for going into a grand tour particularly the tour de france i mean there are some tough mountain climbs ahead and he, he just has to survive over them which is not easy to do uh, but if he can i actually think he's got a really good chance at, at taking green and, and meanwhile sagan in in you know five years ago there was a i think less competition for the sagan style stages it was just Sagan basically every day up there getting those points. But now he's got to deal with guys like Alaphilippe and Matthew Vanderpool and, and Michael Matthews is there as well. There is, there's a lot of competition for those kind of lumpier days. Whereas Cav, like I said, maybe Merlier is competition. But other than that, it doesn't look like there's that much competition right now. Well, and there's a lot more opportunities for those pure sprint stages. I, I very much disagree, by the way. I think that the sprinter's jersey should be weighted towards... Sprinters? It's not, I think it's not called that. Let me just check Latour.com real quick. I'm pretty sure it's called the points. Uh, yeah, the, the points classification. Yeah, but like, what are points? What what are points? Like, what is a who? Oh, oh, you're a points rider. What's a points rider? There's no there's no points rider. No, it's a sprinter's jersey. Always has been. Always will be, Dane. And it should be weighted toward. It should be weighted toward sprinters. 
we're never going to agree on this. We're just shaking our heads at each other. <laughs> but there's a lot of there's a lot of those pure stitch, pure sprint stages left. I mean, we just went uh, to stage six today, Chateau. There are one. There's there are five pure sprint stages left by my count. Uh, obviously, concluding with the Champs Elysees. Now, of course, there's always a chance that that you know one or more of those goes some other direction. A late break survives. Some of those are not, you know, pan flat, and so you never really know how those are going to finish up. But it's there, there are essentially, I think, five more available options for for guys like Cav, guys like Merlier, Philipson, certainly. Uh, so I, I wouldn't surprise me in the slightest if, as you say, Cav can hang on to this thing, uh, particularly if he has a couple more good days and he can get himself over the mountains. I mean, last year, right? Pure sprinter, Sam Bennett, is about as pure a sprinter as you can possibly find. He took home green. So it, it, I think that it's a it's very feasible that we see a non-Peter Sagan green jersey at the end of this Tour de France. I, I got two more brief talking points from the sprint today. One, there was some line deviation. Uh, well, the two, the two different lead-out trains basically kind of came together... And then they came together right as Tim Merlier finished his lead out. And he came down the middle, forcing Cavendish and Philipson to basically go around him on either side, right? And they basically, they went around and then came back to the middle. Uh, Not egregious line deviations, no crashes as a result. We have certainly seen riders relegated for a similar amount of deviation. And I honestly think that if you'd seen... For example, Nasir Pahani, who finished in third, if you'd seen a similar deviation from him, we might have seen a bit more outrage and possibly even some sort of relegation because for some reason he's a rider that tends to attract such things. Nonetheless, in my in my humble opinion, I I didn't really see any issues there because they both deviated together they basically came together right one of them came left the other came right and they ended up on the basically the center line of the road. I, I saw no issue with with allowing that sprint to stand as it was. I think it's worth re- reiterating too that these guys are going sixty five kilometers an hour, usually with their heads mostly down, and staying in a perfectly straight line in those circumstances is basically impossible. So there needs to be some some allowance for a bit of deviation. And I think the the jury got this one right today. Yeah, I don't think Cav was ever going to get relegated for that. Largely, kind of for what you said because it's come back Cav right now, and I don't think the jury wants to be the ones denying him a victory. Uh, he did deviate more than Philipson did. Uh, he deviated enough that if you read the rule, I think you could make a, a decent argument. But I don't, I don't think he should have been relegated. I think it's just an example, example number 87, of why the rule needs to be rewritten. Because he definitely did not maintain a straight lane. He went around um, earlier, and then he kind of came right in front of him. And Philipson went for the same spot. Uh, I don't think... Cav may not have known even that Philipson was there because Philipson was also deviating from his line. And because of that, he and he was behind him, so he might not have even known that he was cutting him off. Uh, I think Philipson, you know, puts his arm out at the end thinking this isn't cool. But, yeah, I think I think most juries would not have relegated Cavendish for this, despite him, you know, regardless of, of who it is. Uh, it just, to me, is another sign of this rule needs more specifics. It, 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 we shouldn't have questions. We should, we should know whether this is okay or not. And I think 
the fact that there were even questions at all is probably not a great sign for the how the rule is written because Cav did leave his lane, but I don't think it was worthy of relegation. I think the other option is you leave the rule super vague and then you have a like a group of I don't know, we'll call it five former world tour sprinters and they vote on whether someone gets relegated or not, right? You get like, you know, get 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 the guys from uh from the sort of the mid 2000s, right? You get like Robbie McEwen, and Tor Hushoft and like a bunch of guys and you just get them together and they vote on whether someone should get relegated or not. I think that's that's how they should do it. Just throw the rule out the window. Just like if these guys don't like what you just did, then you get relegated. It's not a bad plan. I, I think it. You know, it's. I think it's as about as good a way they as they do it right now, which is not good. But it's. A, it's as not good too as that. far off what they so, do right now. Really, yeah, yeah. that's true. That's true. They don't have Robbie McEwen making the decisions, but it's kind of the same. And they've just got they've got long. You know, the the race jury at the Tour de France has been at this a very long time, right? Those folks are making the call. And it is fundamentally a subjective call because the rule is written as it is written. So, yeah, maybe not the best solution in the world, but I would I would make for some entertaining headlines, right? I mean, because then you got you got you got former sprinters probably providing quotes on why they booted X Y rider, and and I think it would be a great idea. It'd be entertaining. I'd like to least. add Gracie Elvin into that. Yeah, I feel put like her in. She would be a great voice of reason. <laughs> You know, and you need like you need three of the five to uh, to vote to relegate, or else the rider's not relegated. I think today to go to go to the the specifics of today. I think today was another example of like the the outcome kind of determining the ruling because Merlier behind Phillipson uh, when Phillipson got cut off himself, Merlier could have crashed, but he hit the brakes and he didn't. He he was able to stay on his bike, and Phillipson also. I, I think it, it would not have been a surprise to see Phillipson go down, but he didn't. Either one of them, though, had they decided to you know, not break or not take evasive action, could have hit the deck, and then maybe Cab gets relegated. And I don't think it should be up to whether or not the rider behind you is good enough to, to not crash, whether you get relegated. And that, that, that's, I think, the fundamental problem with, with the way that things work right now, both in sprints and uh, apparently in sign holding at the side of the road. Uh, the way that the way that the, the UCI and the ASO kind of tend to run things. Speaking of which, uh, sign holder lady has been released, right? And they've dropped. Have they dropped complaints been dropped. I don't really. I don't really or? know exactly what her status is, but yeah, yeah. We don't need to. We don't need to talk about that one again. I think we made that clearly yesterday that we find it. Not a great precedent set in that entire situation. Seemed like the ASO listened to us at least, uh, you know, dropping their complaints. Oh, they for sure. They for sure listen to the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah we have that kind of power. Yeah. <laughs> Last small thing for the sprint today. This is just something that we noticed uh, afterward. Mark Cavendish dropped his chain <laughs> right at the very end. Now, I just you know, brief explanation of basically what happened here, just for listeners who saw it or saw it on tv or saw photos afterward so he didn't break his chain uh it's just dangling off of his front chain ring and basically what happens is if your free hub is not spinning as nicely and smoothly as you would hope maybe the maybe the grease in there is a little bit thick or whatever and you're going 65 kilometers an hour in the 11 tooth in particular uh being on a small cog is relevant here if you're on a small cog and you're going very fast and you go from sprinting to suddenly just gliding or pedaling backwards even, which there might have been a bit of a back pedal when, when Cavs sat up 
to to post up, then your chain can fall off basically because the the free wheel continues to spin with the wheel, which is what it's been doing, uh, and doesn't disengage quickly enough, and it throws the chain off. So that's exactly what happened with Cab today. But the chain came off after his last hard pedal stroke. That's kind of the important thing. So it's not like he won a sprint without a chain or something like that. It was a it was an after the fact kind of thing. That's all I wanted to say. Just a brief brief explainer of how free hubs work or sometimes don't in this case. Before we get to tomorrow's stage, I want to just really briefly talk about the breakaway dynamic today because I think it has changed in in the last couple of years. Like I said at the top of the show, you know, before a stage like this, you'd get you'd get a small group of riders, maybe like two maximum, probably like four or five, and they'd be given, I don't know, seven minutes, nine minutes, ten minutes, something like that, because, you know, they would just let them go out, and the peloton would essentially stop riding for 50, 60K, let that let that gap go out massively, and then chase, 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 and bring them back by the finish. Uh, if you missed it, there's a, there's a story up on the site from yesterday that Matt Deneef wrote on Chapat's Law, that is basically the, the, the old adage, which is brought up in commentary all the time, that you could basically pull back 10 seconds per kilometer. Uh, and, that, you know, it's a, it's a rough guide. It's not, it's not perfect. It obviously depends on the course and the wind and all these other things and how many riders up the road, who the riders are up the road, etc. But it's a rough guide for sort of how quickly a peloton can pull back a small group. And given that guide, you can pull back quite a bit of time quite quickly if you really want to. Today, we saw a decent-sized group go up the road, and it actually even had like a quick-step rider, and it had Casper Askren in it, and the, the, the Peloton had zero interest in allowing that, that group to go. So you're like, okay, well, maybe it's just not the right mix, right? Maybe it just doesn't work. That happens all the time. Brake goes up the road. They realize it's not the right mix. The Peloton brings it back. So then the next group goes, right, which was Greg Van Avermaet and Roger Kluge, just the duo. And they still weren't given any any real time. They were never given more than about two minutes today, and that was that's what's kind of unusual to me is the the sprint teams seem more concerned than before about their ability to pull back small groups, and they just never were given much of a tether today. It makes the breakaway feel even more doomed in a lot of ways. But it's also I think it's interesting from a from a a sprinter team like workload perspective because basically what they did today and we're gonna hear from cavendish on this in just a second the other teams just didn't really want to help dakuna quickstep alps and phoenix helps a little bit dakuna quickstep works but there's a bunch of other sprint teams in this race including archaea samsic which is you know they've got buhani in the top three a couple different times already this this tour de france we've got arno damar those teams they helped shut down that initial bigger breakaway but then they didn't really help at all with the other two. And as a result, you've got Quickstep coming into the finale sort of heavily depleted, uh, which is essentially a big part of the reason why Brent Van Moor the other day almost made it to the finish line because there was just no massive effort from the sprint teams because they'd already been working all day. Cav had a little interview after the stage. Some of you might have seen this on TV, but I just thought it was interesting because he's, he's kind of thrown some shade at these, at these French teams in particular for just not helping. You won uh, on a stage that left from Châteauroux a few years ago. You won, of course, in Châteauroux. It, it was to be. Yeah, <laughs> it was nice. Wow. 
It seems like every time we've finished here, it's been a different line though. 2008, it was uphill a bit. I think it was further down the road. 2011, it was short from the finish. I think it was still uphill a bit, but short from last. Shit, it's like kind of downhill flat running. Oh, but still, it's Mark Cavendish that wins at the end. I Take us through that, those moments. Ten, ten years since I last won here, you know. Um, it's pretty special, like, and actually in pretty similar fashion to then. Like, uh, we were talking about what to do in the final, because there's so many strong sprint teams here all wanting to go for the front. That uh, to take on is a big ask, you know, you always get swamped at the finish. Um, by those big teams, especially those teams that I don't understand why you bring a full sprint team here and not ride for a sprint. You know, the break went with all our guys, like we had Casper in there, a lot of the sprint teams had someone in there, and all of a sudden, France de Jeu, uh, Arkea, like the French teams in the Tour de France, and they panic because there's a group gone then, but then when there's a breakaway to the chance for a sprint, they don't pull, and so they've got everyone in the final there, so you expect them to come. Um, and uh, actually, as usual, it's uh, it's uh, the other team that share the work with us in uh, in uh, Alpecin, um, and they came with the strongest team in the end as well. And uh, actually, yeah, Michael left the outside. The win was coming from the right. Michael left the left for me to go, but uh, I wanted just a split second longer in the wheels before I went, so I had to switch trains and and go from then. But uh, so happy with that. Like you see the guys, you see how much they pulled uh, the world champion Julian Alaphilippe, just burying himself in the last kilometers. That's something special. All the guys are. Listen, sorry, I'm just talking on now, but I'm buzzing, you know. Mark, it's your 30 seconds victory. You know what my next question is going to be? Are you thinking don't about Don't say that? the name. Don't say the I name. I didn't say anything. I'm not thinking about anything. Again, I've just won a stage of the Tour de France. If that was my first stage, if that was my 30 second stage, I'd just won a stage of the Tour. And, uh, that's what people work their whole lives for, you know. Yeah. I'm very, very happy. That's all. I say. If I'm good enough to win 50 more, I'm good enough to win 50. If I'm good enough to never win again here, so be it. I'm not good enough to win again here. Um, it's the Tour de France. Thank you, young man. Thank. Like, when was the last time you saw Greg Van Avermaet off the front of a race in a doomed breakaway? They clearly thought that that was going to be a good call. I mean. Tom's doesn't go in lame breakaways either, you know, like we should say that the Tom's is in that initial breakaway. And, and this is a day it was, it was a day that was very unlikely to end in a sprint in, in, a, in a breakaway victory, but not impossible if you get the right group up the road. And I think that breakaway riders are probably a little bit um, emboldened by Brent Van Moore and how close he came the other day. Right. Because They've seen this dynamic between the sprint teams and the fact that the sprint teams are not they're not really working together on this front. And the GC teams have zero reason to pull. You know, you've got, you've, you're not going to have any us on the front or you're definitely not going to have UAE on the front pulling everything back together to make sure that they you know, don't lose time to Greg Van Avermaet. Like, they don't, they don't care about that at all. So it's all on the shoulders of these sprint teams. And they're just not, they're not clicking right now. They're not... They're not playing nice with each other, and as a result, I, like I think tomorrow, as a result, is potentially another breakaway day. Uh, and normally, I would say that the peloton would probably pull pull a break back on a day like tomorrow, but because 
I just the, the dynamics within the peloton, the, the dynamics between teams that matter. I I think it's a pretty pretty good shot for a break tomorrow. We'll get into tomorrow's stage in a little bit, but it also doesn't help that most of the teams are GC teams now. There used to be teams that were very heavily there for all the sprinters. Now, pretty much every single team has a at least a smidgen of GC hope or is pretending that they do. And so they're not going to put anyone on the front, even if FD, Groupama FDJ should have helped out for uh, Arnaud Damar. And honestly, the one that I was most um, confused about was Trek Segafredo because they have three sprinters, three not pure sprinters, but still three guys that can sprint. And they didn't really help much at all during the day until the end. So that was, it, it's just a very odd dynamic for the sprinting, given that this tour has so many sprint stages. I think if you're a Trek Segafredo, though, you're incentivized to keep doing that because of what happened today. I mean, it works. <laughs> you know DeKunik's eventually going to be like, ah, fine, we'll do it. And they did. And I feel like the same for some of these French teams. My, my one thought, though, is that if you're saving your riders, if you're doing that to save your riders from having to work so that they can help you in the final, where are your leadouts? Because like, it's still only ever DeKunik and Alpes and Fenix there at the end. So you would think a, they, the fresher teams, the fresher French teams or, or Trek or whomever, would be up there, but eh, we haven't really seen that much so far. Yeah, I mean, Arnaud Demar's primary leadout man, Garnieri, went down, what, with about one and a half, 2K to go today. It was quite late. Uh, so that doesn't help, certainly. But yeah, it's, they've just been kind of invisible, which, as Cav said in that little interview, like, these are French teams at the Tour de France. Like, what are they doing? Their whole, their whole thing is to be visible most of the time. And I, I'm just a little bit confused about the sort of dynamics happening right now. But, but also, you can't blame them. Because like you said, like, Alps and Fenix and, and, and Dakota Quickstep have to do all the work right now. And if you're F2G or you're Arkea Samsic, you're not going to be like, well, why would we put, why would we, you know, put our guys up there? Because we're pretty sure those two teams are going to pull back the breakaway without us. So why would we waste our energy? Anyway, interesting dynamic. I think that tomorrow, tomorrow is going to be a very interesting stage from a breakaway, who gets in the breakaway, how big the breakaway is, how much time it's given, and then behind that, who ends up doing the work to either keep it in check or chase it down to the end or fail to do so. Uh, I'm putting my money on, on a breakaway victory tomorrow. Speaking of which, let's hear about tomorrow's stage from Jose Bain. It's stage seven, and after 26 kilometers, the Tour de France peloton passes through the city of Bourges. It's one of the biggest cities of the region and the finish of the French semi-classic Paris-Bourges. That race was first held in 1913, and more recent winners include Matt Heyman, André Greipel, Sam Bennett, and John Dinkorp. And just like Paris-Roubaix or Paris-Tours, Paris-Bourges doesn't start in Paris anymore, but it kept the name nonetheless. Another winner of Paris-Bourges and resident of the city of Bourges was Albert Bourlon. And Albert is a bit of a legend in the history of the Tour de France. He won one Tour de France stage, and that was in the edition of 1947, the same one where his good friend René Fiatot lost his toe, remember? It was stage 14 from Carcassonne to Luchon in the French Pyrenees, and the date was 11 July 1947. 
Albert Bourlon attacked straight from the gun. Bourlon was known to be tough as nails. In the Second World War, he had been imprisoned in a German camp, but after many attempts, he managed to escape. He crossed Ukraine, Slovakia and Hungary on foot until reaching Romania, where he even managed to win the Bucharest Ploiesti Bucharest Bike Classic in 1944. But back to that 1947 Tour de France. Nobody joined Albert Bourlon when he attacked straight after the start and so he continued on his own. His initial goal was to make some money with the premiums that were available after 50 kilometers. But when his lead was close to half an hour halfway into the 253 kilometer long stage, he started to believe in his own chances. Bourlon was a terrible climber, but he fought his way over the Col du Porte d'Aspé and the Col d'Arrêt and reached the finish line in Carcassonne after 8 hours and 10 minutes. The next riders arrived 16 minutes later and the peloton led by the winner of this edition of the Tour, Jean Robic, finished 22 minutes later. Albert Bourlon completed his heroic solo effort with an average speed of almost 31 kilometers an hour and to this date it's the longest victorious solo breakaway in post-war Tour de France. With the longest stage in 2021 being this one we ride today, and it's only 249 kilometers, which means that Bourlon's record stands at least another year. There is a small disclaimer to this story though, there was one longer breakaway in the history, in a time when time didn't matter because the general classification went on points. So basically the effort was a bit much and futile. In 1906, however, the fourth edition of the Tour de France, it was René Poitier who rode alone for 325 kilometers to win the stage from Grenoble to Nice. He also won that Tour de France, by the way, with five stage wins in total of the 13 ridden in that edition. As always, lovely from Jose. Dane, from a racing perspective, what do we got to look forward to tomorrow? We've we've hinted at it a couple different times. Yeah, a bit of uncertainty, I would say. It's it's going to be a really tough one to predict. Uh, it's the longest stage of this tour, and the longest stage of the Tour de France in 21 years, which I know because Matt Deneef told me in his stage-by-stage -stage breakdown of the Tour de France, which if you haven't read, if you're not looking at every day like I am, you should, because it's extremely helpful. Uh, so thanks to Matt Denis for, for putting that together. Uh, but yeah, longest stage of the tour in 21 years at 249K, and it's pretty lumpy. The, the first half is relatively flat, uh, but then the second half of the stage has five categorized climbs in it, uh, and uh, it, it, to me, it looks, it, it does look like a really good stage for the breakaway, because it's going to be really hard to control. Uh, it's going to be a stage that the sprinters aren't going to have a good chance at, because it's, it's too lumpy. Uh, so it's it's going to be a smaller subset of teams who are going to want to try to keep it under control, and it's going to be hard to keep under control. Uh, I I think if Dakota Quickstep really wanted to, they could they could control this race. I mean, this looks like a perfect stage for Julian Alaphilippe to me. It's it's you know him and, and Peter Sagan, maybe Michael Matthews. It's, it's some of those riders who who I talked about before as as having that more versatile skill set, but they're going to need to keep it under control. They're going to need to keep the guys like Brad Van Moore. From, from going off the front, and that that's going to be tough. And then in, even if they do, I mean, even if the early break gets caught, there is a there is a fourth category climb uh, that, that comes up like within the last 10k. And again, even if things are 
brought back together from the early break, that's still a launching pad for, yeah, for a, a rider who, you know, has hung out in the pack all day and goes off the front. So it's going to be a really tough one to, to predict, but I think that's good because we've had some, we've had some sprints and time trials, and I think this will be the first real kind of really unpredictable, who knows if it's a break or a, or a GC guy or a, or a punch or break or no break. That's the question. What do you think? It's going to be a huge fight for the break tomorrow. There's going to be a ton of guys wanting to get in it, given the end of the stage and how hard it is at the finale. But I think that Matthew Vanderpool is very encouraged by his TT ride and he's going to want to keep yellow. And there's a possibility that someone who's close to him, like Casper Asgreen or even Tij Benut, I mean, he's like three minutes, three and a half minutes down, but still could slip into a break and then they would have to really fight to keep that yellow jersey. I think it completely depends on who can get into the break, but the second that they have a small break with smaller teams and guys that aren't threats, they're going to keep it at a safe distance and bring it back so that Matthew Vanderpool can can keep his yellow jersey and even like maybe win the stage. Yeah. He, him being a stage contender just adds to that incentive for Alpha and Fenix to really go for it. I feel like there were several years ago this would look like a Peter Sagan stage, but it would like only be Bora Hansgrohe doing the work on this kind of stage. But now with guys like Matthews and Alphilippe and maybe Watt van Aert and of course Matthew Vanderpool already in yellow, so already having reason to, to do the work. It's a different dynamic than we've seen before. Well, and they have no they have no GC hopes because let's keep in mind that the following stage is the first sort of true Alpine stage, first true GC Alpine stage uh, of the Tour de France, finishing in Le Grand Bornand. So, yeah, the GC teams are basically going to want to keep their gunpowder dry. So you're not going to see it in Ineos on the front or something like that, except to, except to control and be safe. They're not going to be chasing, right? But as you say, there are enough teams that don't have a GC contender. I know this sort of flies in the face of what we were talking about in the sprinting, but there are almost more teams with like a, 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 a Sagan style rider, including Bora, uh, including what well, with, with Vanderpool and Alpes and Phoenix, uh, Matthews with bike exchange. There's almost more teams on that front than there are pure sprint teams. Right. And so I can see where you guys are coming from. You're, you're saying that, that no breakaway tomorrow. However, However, I think it's it's a still a good breakaway day. I'm not super confident in my prediction <laughs> that a breakaway survives, but I think it's the best shot that we've seen so far this Tour de France, and I just haven't seen a ton of cohesion from the peloton thus far this tour, uh, and I think that, that maybe a break is able to take, take advantage of that tomorrow. It all depends who gets in it, really. I mean, if you've got if you've got Casper Asgreen in it, like it's just not going to go anywhere, right? They'll, they'll they'll leave him at three minutes. Uh, even Tom's Abby, like you know, he's he's four and a bit minutes down. They don't give they don't give anybody with like less than five minutes. They don't give him much of a gap, right? If you get a break with a bunch of guys that are twenty minutes down, which there are a lot of those now, maybe then. Maybe then you end up with okay, you know, give the break eleven minutes, and and they screw up the timing on the way back, and the break wins. Uh, anyway, I'm I'm pulling for a break. This is more of a heart pick than a head pick. I'm pulling for a break tomorrow, and so I'm going to stick with it. Regardless of whether it's break or peloton that contests the stage, it's the length is I think going to have an impact, and we don't. The length of the stage usually has an impact in the other direction, like the short stages. 
is where the length tends to have a big impact. But 249K, like this is almost the same distance as Gen Wavelgum, which is you know, not not an easy race for the Grand Tour guys to go and do. I mean, the, the, the distance, I think we're going to see that have an impact. I think some of the Classics guys are really going to like it, and some riders are not going to like it at all. And the fact that it comes before these two mountain stages, I mean, the the, the stage that follows is tough, and then the stage after that is really hard. Uh, that I think that's we could see impact from that down the road a little bit. I mean, having done this really long stage, which is up and down pretty hard. Uh, and, and I think, you know, two days from now, somebody could be saying, yeah, the fact that we had such a hard stage on stage seven kind of really put me out of shape for, for stage eight or stage nine. So that, that's another kind of thing to keep an eye on. Yeah. And that's again, like it's why I think any team with even a, even a modest GC contender is not going to want it to be hard tomorrow. Right. Uh, Granted, again, there may be enough teams that that's not going to matter. But any team with with a with a GC contender is going to basically want to just tap it out tomorrow, right? Let a break go that that doesn't matter. Has a bunch of riders that are fifteen minutes down, and just tap it out in the peloton as much as they possibly can because they're all going to want to just save their legs. They're just going to save their legs for for the weekend. Anyway, that's my that's my pitch. That's my case. I'm probably going to be wrong. <laughs> Although, hey, got got another guess right. Got another prognostication correct today. We've got two Cavendish stage wins. I have been saying that, have I not? I'm sorry. This is I'm where sorry. you heap kudos again. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, you said Buhani yesterday. I picked him, but I also have, I also said that Cav was going to get two stage wins this Tour de France. Did I not? I did. Skeptical looks. A, a, a bet well it. hedged, I would say. But you know, no. <laughs> sometimes you got to hedge your bets. Correct. I got no problem correct. with that. So. <laughs> Okay, picks time. Abby, who do you got for tomorrow? Matthew Vanderpool. All right. Or Thomas DeGent. You can't have two. But I don't think it'll be. Are you kidding? Tomorrow of all days, I feel like you can have two because it, it's it's a crapshoot. True. True. But you can't have two, so you got to pick one. Otherwise, you're like me, picking both Cav and Buhani for today, and therefore being correct. Abby, it's only okay when Kaylee does it, is the thing here. <laughs> it's just because I'm the boss, Abby. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think Matthew Vanderpool. I'm sticking with my gut. All right. Dane? I think Peter Sagan. I... I I withhold the right to change this before I actually write a preview, but I think I'm going to go with Peter Sagan right now. He, he can, because he, sometimes he gets into the breakaway as well. There are times when he'll do that, and, and I think that, that kind of gives him a little bit of an edge, because he could win it either way. So I'm, I'm, because I've talked about it so much already, I'm going to pick someone I think is going to get into the breakaway. And it's a tricky one, because the finale suits sort of a punchy climber type, but the getting into the breakaway part is relatively flat and will suit sort of more like a kind of classics rider, right? That can that can make that move because it's probably going to take it's going to take a, an hour to to get the break off the front tomorrow, right? Because there's going to be a million different versions of that breakaway until the peloton is finally happy with whatever gets off the, off the front. So it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard to get into the break tomorrow. So I'm going with Dylan Tunes. I, I can't really tell you why i just i have i'm feeling a vibe from dylan right now <laughs> i believe 
<laughs> there we go. There's my pick, Dylan Tunes. Now, before we wrap up today's stage, I, I wanted to very briefly uh, bring up a story, a great story that Abby wrote. Uh, I woke up to this morning, in fact, because she's in Europe and I'm in America, and we're delayed a little bit, uh, that discussed, well, basically, the, the sort of glorification of riders continuing in the Tour de France when pretty heavily injured, right? And I think there's a, there's sort of a, a difference between like a light injury, like continuing in the Tour de France when you lost some skin, which I think is, we can all say, relatively commendable, right? You're pushing through the pain barrier, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, with specifically the example of Mark Soler riding around with two broken arms, right? Which we joked about earlier in the podcast or in an earlier episode of the podcast, but is really quite dangerous, uh, puts other riders at danger, glorify something that we don't really want to be glorifying abby where did this where did this story come from well i woke up this morning to um news of a statement by mark solaire about his crash and um that he he's personally gonna sue the sign holder um lady from stage one and part of his statement it wasn't his his plans to sue her anything that really stood out to me part of the statement that stood out was that he crashed he landed on his hands and his face he couldn't feel his hands or stand and the mechanic had to pick him up by his uh, by his armpits and he was sitting on the side of the road dizzy which again if a rider is dizzy there is concussion protocol that seems to constantly be ignored um and and his team said just ride to the finish, just keep riding. So his team who should have his best interests at heart, uh, really encouraged him to get back on the bike. And that was kind of where my, my anger came from when I sat down and kind of busted this opinion piece out. And I think I said it in the article, but there's a fine line between being tough and being stupid. And I think Primus Roglic is a great example of being tough. He's missing most of his skin, but he's intact. He's not a danger to the riders around him. Mark Soler riding to the finish with two broken arms. He said in his statement, he couldn't shift. He couldn't break. That is incredibly dangerous for the riders around him and could take out more riders, could injure more riders, puts people's lives and their dreams and their goals in jeopardy. So that that was kind of what I was thinking when I when I wrote this, but I think that there's this there's this opinion in cycling and and I I'm reminded of the memes that you see of cyclists versus soccer players, football players. They have, you know, a photo of a soccer player lying on the ground, not injured at all, and a photo of Johnny Hoogerland completely destroyed by a barbed wire fence. And they're like, look at our athletes. They're tougher than your athletes. And I'm and I just am not impressed by that mentality. I don't think it's a good thing to instill in children who are watching the sport. I don't think that it's a good thing for athletes to uh, to think there should be better rules in place for what happens when there's a crash and how they should how it should be treated and how people should be checked before they're allowed to get back on their bike. But at the moment, riders are commended for finishing with two broken arms. This mindset is not something that that I personally find uh, super inspiring. I just think I just think it's dumb. I think we agree. Yeah, I just wanted to. I, yeah, I wanted. Oh, you know, 
this is a good platform for us to, to, to talk about our opinions, I think. It's a podcast. And I thought that piece was, was well put together, uh, well thought through. If you haven't gone and read it yet, go check it out. It is up on cyclingtips.com. Great website. Right now. Uh, yeah, it's 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 something that our sport just has grappled with for a very long time and will continue to grapple with, right? And And fundamentally, it comes down to there's no timeouts in cycling. There's no, like at the moment, there's no way to actually check and see if a rider is okay because if they wait more than a minute or so, the caravan is gone. The caravan of cars is gone and they're gone. They're never coming back. The race is over. And so until cycling figures out a way to solve that problem, I don't think we will ever solve the tough it out, get back on your bike, get to the finish line mentality, which is exactly what, what Solaire was, was, you know, that, that he was, it was, that was the pressure that he was under. Cause if you don't get to the finish line, you don't get to start the next day. And again, that's another rule that like, until you, until we fix this, this confluence of things, we will never get sort of an accurate picture of a rider's health before they get back on the bike. You know, I, I think back to like when George Bennett was it last year, had a pretty nasty crash, whacked his head, got up, like looked a bit dazed, chased back on, you know, there was a lot of hemming and hawing at the time about like, well, what about the concussion protocol? Like, what, what do you do? And, you know, the medic took a really quick look at him and was like, well, he's, he seems okay. But you don't really, you don't really know, right, that quickly. Uh, riders all, all, all amped up on adrenaline at that point. Still, they just hit the deck at whatever speed they were going. Anybody who's, who's crashed on a bicycle knows that, you know, you stand up, you're all jittery, you're shaking, you're, you know, your body is in it, it, like, like, basically like a fight or flight response, right? Because uh, you've just whacked yourself into the pavement in your underwear at 30 miles an hour. So you can't really tell without time. I, I think I proposed last year, and I've seen this elsewhere as well, you know, like stick them in a van and essentially create a, like the equivalent of a criterium free lap, but for the Tour de France. Stick them in the back of a van, check them out, stick him back into the group that he was in 15K later, right? It's 15K over the course of the entire Tour de France. The rider just crashed. It's not an advantage. It's more important to determine whether or not that rider is okay to continue racing. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's is there the possibility that some rider takes advantage of it? I don't know, probably. But the the reality is that rider that would take advantage of it is probably not in the running for anything at the Tour de France anyway, because any rider any big important rider who who goes down or doesn't go down or whatever it's probably going to have cameras on them most of the time. So I, I, I think that there needs to be some kind of solution on that front where, you know, where, where we can just actually evaluate these, these athletes before they get back on and continue to do something that is very dangerous inherently. You know, it's not like, it's not even like you're getting back on a, on a soccer field and just running around and kicking a ball, right? You're cruising around at 25 miles an hour with other people around. It's a much more dangerous thing. So I, I think we should wrap up because it's been a little bit of a longer episode than we intended. But I also just want to point out that the UCI not having any kind of specific protocol when it comes to riders following a caravan or following the cars to get back in the race is making the problem a lot worse because it means no matter where you crash, if you crash with 200 kilometers to go, you still have to get up and get back on your bike as fast as possible. Otherwise, you might get you might finish outside the time limit, which is what happened when Garrett Thomas went down on stage three. 
That's why Luke Rowe got fined for yelling at the commissaire because they wouldn't let them draft. And that's another huge issue because Garant had to figure out how to, okay, we need to get back on my bike as soon as possible, pop my shoulder back in as soon as possible so that I can get back on my bike and get back into the Peloton. Otherwise I'll lose time. And if there was even just a little bit more, if even if the rule was a little bit clearer about how long riders could follow the car or what, in what circumstances riders could follow a car and the UCI didn't sometimes have the rule and sometimes not, which is what it seems like at the moment, then that would also make the situation a lot less split of split spur of the moment decision that leads to probably not great outcomes. hundred percent agreed. Yeah. Again, well put Abby. Go check out the story. Go read it. Um, yeah, well, I think we'll leave that there. Sometimes I do great work, and sometimes I have my moments. And apparently, five stages of the Tour de France has already melted my brain because the Giro Rosa actually starts tomorrow. So when I said yesterday the Giro Rosa starts tomorrow, I did not know what day of the week it was. And actually, the Giro Rosa starts tomorrow. So... Friday, July 2nd is the start of the Jera Rosa. I apologize for my um, slip up. Nobody noticed. So apparently it was fine, but it's but actually Friday, corner for the, for the July 2nd. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And for anybody wondering where Lachlan Morton is, last little bit here today, we said we would give you guys updates on the alt tour. He is most of the way through stage seven so tomorrow tomorrow's stage he is basically he's in the lumpy bits of tomorrow's stage getting a little preview of what we will see tomorrow he is getting pretty darn close to geneva which is uh the, the course sort of basically ducks just south of there through france um the actual town that he is in he's currently in actually it shows that he's off course at the moment he's lost <laughs> Lachlan is lost. <laughs> uh, Lachlan, you're going. His little dot is moving, and he's going the wrong direction. Where are you going, mate? Like, what? What are you? Maybe he's decided he's had had enough of the flip flops. But there was a bike shop. A bike shop. Ten kilometers. That's very back. possible. Yeah, uh, he's in Chavan sur Saran, uh, which is about four uh, k off course. <laughs> um, Maybe he'll get back at some point here. Anyway, he's like two-thirds of the way through through tomorrow's stage. He does. He's still leading the Peloton. But as I mentioned when we first were talking to him, he needs to get quite a lead on the Peloton because he's got a big old transfer to, to basically race a plane at the end of this race. All right, that's enough for today. We went a bit long. The three of us always do for some reason. We, we go shorter when we have more people on this podcast for some reason. Let's call it a day. We'll be back tomorrow. Although I won't. I'm off tomorrow. We'll be back tomorrow from Stage 7. Bye, everybody. Bye.